Our scripture this evening comes from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. Ruth chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, a famine came on the land, and a man from Bethlehem, Judah, went to stay a while in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. So when they came to the country of Moab, they stayed there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, so she was left, along with her two sons. Now they took for themselves wives, Moabite girls. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the second Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then even the two of them, Machlon and Kilion, died, so that the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Then she rose up along with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab because she had heard in the country of Moab that Yahweh had looked after his people by giving them food. She went forth from the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the road to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to both her daughters-in-law, Go on, turn back, each to the house of her mother, May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you have done with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you find a secure place, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, But we're going to return with you to your people. And Naomi said, Go back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say, there's hope for me, even if I had a husband this very night, and even if I gave birth to sons, would you therefore wait until they grew up? Would you therefore hold yourselves back from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it is far more bitter for me than for you. Indeed, the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. Then they lifted up their voice and wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Go back after your sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Don't pressure me to abandon you, to turn back from following you. But wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh bring all the more disaster on me, if even death separates me from you. When she saw that she was dead set on going with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was in a stir over them. The women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has deeply marred me. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why will you call me Naomi, since Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought disaster on me? 
Now Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That could almost be a newspaper account, couldn't it? You have just the facts, verses 1 to 5, but not without a touch of sympathy as well. It's a story of multiple adversity. Uh, says family that is in Bethlehem of Judah, because of the pressure of a famine, go to Moab. Now, you don't have a map here, and so we have to make do. And perhaps you have to wander into those pages in the back of your Bible. But you know where Bethlehem of Judah is. It's west of the Dead Sea. Uh, uh, Jerusalem is right here in Bethlehem, six miles south, southwest of it. And uh, probably Elimelech and his family went to the northeast around the north end of the Dead Sea, which is right here, obviously. And then they went down south on the east side of the Dead Sea until they reached the land of Moab. And they were staying there. Uh, That was, verses 1 and 2, the big move. And that's followed, verse 3, with a hard fact. Elimelech died. And then that's followed by the double deaths, verse 5, of Machlon and Kilion. Her sons die. And that's, of course, followed by that sad verb. And she was left. Verse 3 and verse 5. She is left. Her two sons have died. Her husband has died. And... uh, What you have here is a woman who sees herself as too old, of course, to remarry, apparently. Maybe she was only in her middle, late 40s, but she thought she was too old to remarry. And she was not going to have her her sons had died. She has no heir, no husband, no sons. She has no heir. She has apparently no one to take care of her in her advancing years, and her family is going to go extinct in Israel. And then she comes to a major decision, verse 6, because she heard that the famine was over in Judah, and so she's going to go back. Uh, And that's the focus of the chapter. Most of chapter 1 has a scene, we could call it, on the road. They're on their way back. The daughters-in-law begin with Naomi, going back to the land of Judah. And the book of Ruth, for me, is, is a scary book. There are two books that scare me, uh, among others, in the Old Testament. One is the book of Job, and the other is the book of Ruth. Well, you see what verses 1 to 5 are telling you. It only takes five verses for your whole life to fall apart. And you can do the math. One famine, three deaths... Ten years, five verses. That, I think, is scary. But as we look at this passage that tells us of what the Lord has taken away, I think his testimony is not totally, totally negative. I think the testimony of Ruth chapter 1 is trying to say, the Lord who takes away also 
gives. And the question is, what then does he give? Well, in the first place, he gives unremarkable provision. Verse 6, in the light of verse 5. Verse 6 says, Then she rose up along with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab because she had heard in the country of Moab that Yahweh had looked after his people by giving them food. There was famine, and that's why they had originally gone to Moab to sojourn there. And and now there's provision. The famine is over. Yahweh has looked after his people by giving them food. That's one of the texts, one of the two texts in the book of Ruth that speaks of Yahweh's uh, uh, direct activity. Chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 13, those two passages. Uh, in the other places, the, the work of Yahweh is more subtle and so on. But here's a direct, direct action, you might say, by Yahweh. Yahweh had looked after his people by giving them food. And we call this unremarkable provision because we usually don't think too much, perhaps, of this kind of provision. Now, this doesn't relieve Naomi's poverty. And this doesn't take away her sorrow, does it? But it does show that the God who brings famine also brings relief from famine. It's a sort of an evidence of Psalm 111. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. And so what do you have here? You have two facts. Naomi has trouble. And she has daily bread. Those two things are together. I may have told some of you or mentioned this in another connection in certain groups or whatever, and if it's repetition, I apologize. But it kind of reminds me of uh, the the whole um, matter with our garbage. I I don't know how your garbage is taken care of where you live. Uh, In our neighborhood, uh, the garbage truck comes along and backs up to the the dumpster that the city gives us to use. And... uh, a couple of guys, or one fellow at least, puts it next there to the back of the garbage truck, and then it lifts it up and dumps the contents, put it back on the by the curb. Uh, other places, I know, uh, a, a garbage truck will pull up and uh, has a robotic arm that reaches out and hugs the dumpster, picks it up, empties it, puts it back down, doesn't have to have any assistance at all, just a guy to drive the truck. You've seen this, fairies and so on. Um, They were just going to that kind of a system when we were leaving Hattiesburg, Mississippi a few years ago. Um, Before that, uh, they'd always done it sort of by hand. The the garbage truck comes up and there were a couple of guys riding on the back and they jump off. They take your garbage cans and they dump it in the truck and put the can. Well, you don't know what they do with the cans. They might do anything. Um... They didn't seem to think that it mattered. Uh, They might, if you had metal cans, they would end up dented. Uh, They might throw them uh, in, leave them in the street rather than put them on the end of the driveway. A car might run over them. You never knew. So because of that, I never put my garbage containers out at the end of the street on Monday and Thursday on garbage days. I uh, always took the black plastic bag liner out of the garbage cans, tied it up, and took the black plastic garbage bags out and put them at the end of the street. They could throw them on the truck, and I still have those garbage cans to this day intact. 
Now, you don't deal with garbage two times a week taking those black plastic bags out to the end of the street without beginning to think theologically about garbage. And when you do that, as you carry those things out down the driveway, sometimes it was usually always at least two. That was normal. Sometimes we had three black plastic bags uh, with the red ties uh, because we may have had company over, and that adds a bag. Um, but you, you think as you walk down the driveway with those things, you know, I have garbage. Ergo, that's Latin for therefore. <laughs> Ergo, God is good. Because I wouldn't have garbage if God wasn't providing me with daily bread. The reason you have garbage is because God is good to you. It's rather don't think much about it, but I call it the silent sacrament of the black plastic bags. <laughs> it's unremarkable to us, perhaps, but it's unremarkable provision. And sometimes you can miss that. And sometimes you can miss that in the midst of your trouble when all of life seems to cave in and it seems like the Lord is even against you and so on. And sometimes you have to pinch yourself to say, I'm in deep water. But what is this? I have daily bread. Unremarkable provision. Secondly, the Lord gives uncompromising steadfastness. Now I'm pulling out of the, uh, you know, I'm, what I'm going to hold, try to argue here is that Naomi remains steadfast in this trial. How does she get that? She gets that uncompromising steadfastness because God enables her to stand. But let's try to look at this. Notice her, notice her convictions. Notice especially verses 13 and 20 and 21. You remember how she said to her daughters and on the last of verse 13, it is far more bitter for me than for you. Indeed, the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. I know there are differences in translations and so on in that verse, but the last part stands pretty solid. The hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And then you notice in verses 20 and 21, when she gets back at Bethlehem to the city gate and the, and the women are fluttering around her, she says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, bitter. And there's a little wordplay in the Hebrew that I've tried to to paraphrase, call me Mara, for the Almighty has deeply marred me. And then in verse 21, the Almighty has brought disaster on me. Now, now as far as Naomi's convictions go, she thinks God is in charge here. Uh, she thinks God must, by definition, be sovereign. And she can't get away from that. If Ephesians 1.11 had been written by this time, Naomi would have agreed with it. That God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And if he's sovereign, and if part of that sovereignty is going to involve bringing trouble into her life, that's going to mean that that sovereign God is also a mysterious God and a perplexing God. I think that the more you think that, 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 that if you have a sovereign God, you're going to have a mysterious and perplexing God. If you have a really sovereign God, you're going to have more, more perplexities 
and mysteries. And, but Naomi, Naomi says this, God has, in fact, she says, Yahweh has testified against me. Um, so she sees Yahweh as utterly sovereign and in supreme control here. At the same time, notice that in verses 8 and 9, there's a different undertone or, or uh, a sentiment. You notice that there where she utters a blessing on her daughters-in-law, and she tells them to turn back. Verse 8, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. Now, that's the, that's the word uh, hesed. May he do hesed, that is, uh, faithful love, or, or deal kindly or graciously with you. May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you've done with the dead and with me. And then verse 9, may Yahweh grant that you find a secure place each in the house of her husband. Do you, do you see Naomi's balance here? Does she like what Yahweh has done? No, he, he, has, he has deeply marred me. He's brought disaster on me. But you see, she doesn't think that God only is the sauerkraut on the crud of life. It's not an unbalanced view. She also knows that Yahweh is the God who deals in a hesed way with people, in kindly and kindly and graciously. And this is what she she expresses and asks for for her daughters-in-law as they go back to Moab. She doesn't say, "May Chemish deal uh, kindly with you, the so-called deity of Moab." No, she expects Yahweh to be active in blessing them, even in Moab. That's interesting. She she doesn't she doesn't have this one-sided view of 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 the Lord that he's that he is just uh, rubbing her nose in the grit and the grime. But she sees also that along with placing her in this trouble, he also deals, and she knows this in a hesed way with people. There's such a, a balance here, even in her trouble. And of course, there is um, there's a, a consciousness that she has that, that she is in the wrong. She thinks she is anyway. Now, in verse 21, she says, Yahweh has testified against me. Now, again, some of your translations may not read that way, but I think that's the, the better uh, rendering there in the middle of the verse. Uh, Yahweh has testified against me. The, uh, the, what, what the Lord has done shows that in some way I'm in the wrong. Uh, she seems to think that the Lord, by these actions and these experiences and this trouble, uh, shows that he is displeased with her. Well, she may be right or she may be wrong. This is her view of it. Um, but you know how it is sometimes when you meet reverses. And when you begin to think that God may be chastising you, and you begin, and it doesn't take too much effort, to dredge up certain items that you think might be the explanation of why he's dealing that way with you. Your conscience gets scoured, and it doesn't take much to dredge up offenses that you think the Lord may be disciplining you for, and so on. And you may be right or wrong, but that happens. Now, of course, there are some expositors that think, yes, well, uh, Naomi was right. 
the Lord was testifying against her. Uh, there are some expositors of Ruth that think what you have in verses 1 to 5, that they're going to Moab and so on, uh, and, and uh, uh, so on, uh, was, was wrong. And that perhaps is one of the things that Naomi thought. It may be that she thought, well, maybe we shouldn't have gone to Moab. Uh, was that... Was that a move of wisdom or was that a failure of trust? Ah, it's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? And then what about those marriages to the, to the Moabite girls? Was that... And of course, some expositors jump on that as well. Actually, Israel was forbidden to marry Canaanites, Deuteronomy 7 doesn't say about the Moabites and so on, but it's a debated thing. And sometimes some expositors will say, no, the writer really wants you to see that these were wrong moves that were made. I, I can't follow that because the writer doesn't expressly say that. He doesn't really comment on whether that was a wrong move on Elimelech and Naomi's part. Uh, some people will say, oh, yes, but the way just, he describes it and so on, uh, they'll say we think that uh, uh, he's being negative about that going to Moab and, and so on. Well, it may be, but it's hard to know uh, what a biblical writer thinks if he doesn't explicitly tell you what he thinks. Uh, so I don't think uh, that, that we can make much out of that. I tend to think that uh, Naomi... Uh, has this very natural way of thinking the Lord must be very displeased because of something and she may be right or wrong in that. But what I want you to see here is let's try to bring her convictions together. I think you could sum up Naomi's faith here or her convictions in about three different propositions. Number one, Yahweh is the only sovereign God. He's in charge here. Number two, Yahweh is a Hesed-showing God, or a Hesed-doing God, verses 8 and 9. And number three, Yahweh has decimated my life. Now that kind of sums up her convictions. What I want you to see here is that there's a sense in which there is a real steadfastness in that. An uncompromising steadfastness. In, in what way? Well, as someone has said, she complains about what God has done, but she does not deny him. She does not forsake him. Granted, she's not victorious, as some people expect. She didn't go around uh, before she uh, got her breakfast eaten singing uh, two stanzas of faith is the victory or something like that. She didn't do that. She wasn't confident or buoyant here. She complains. But by that complaint, she shows she is still dealing with her God. She struggles and wrestles with this God. She laments what he has done, but she does not abandon him. Uncompromising steadfastness. I have a word for that, you know, faith. Uh, let me give you a couple of scenarios that may give us a handle on this kind of thing. I remember one time in our first pastorate, 
we were doing a Bible study on Sunday evenings on First and Second Samuel, and I don't remember what the text was that we were dealing with one night, but it was one that stressed the sovereignty of God and His supremacy in all things and matters. And so I was trying to press that home and so on from the text. And in our little uh, Sunday evening Bible study group, there was a retired Presbyterian minister who was there, and uh, he attended the church and so on. And he said, well, I, I, I don't agree with that. He said, uh, now, for instance, when I was serving in World War II in the Pacific and uh, as, as a chaplain, uh, if, if word had come back to my wife that uh, I had been killed... I would hope she would not say, God has brought this about, or, 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 or the Lord um, is, is behind this in any way. I, I would hope she would say, it just happened. Now, that's an interesting thing because it gets God off the hook. It's also a step into paganism. Because you're saying, well, there is a God who's semi-sovereign over good things as we define good. And then there's this other thing called chance. That some things just happen. Well, that's not a biblical position. That's not where Naomi was. On the other hand, I remember a time in the mid-70s when I went up to uh, spell off my sister-in-law for a while who was taking care of my parents just to give her several days rest. And I went up uh, in in Pennsylvania to stay with them. My my mother was in the hospital at the time. I think she'd broken her leg. And so I was staying with my dad and and so on. Uh, And uh, during during this time... um, well, I, I remember one evening we had had uh, family worship, as we always called it. We were up in Pop's study on the second floor. Uh, Pop read a passage of Scripture, and then he prayed. And then it was after that, and you have to understand that, that um, my father was not one who, who um, hmm, well, he didn't put a bowl out there and spill his psychological guts and say, now look at that. Uh, he played things pretty close to the chest. Now, lots of times you didn't know what he was thinking. And then it came out after, after prayer. It was one of those reflective moments, and he just said, it seems that the hand of the Lord has gone out against us lately. Well... Being a perfectly healthy fellow in my early 30s, uh, I, I, I immediately tend to think, you know, I, I, need to, I need to defend the Lord here a little bit or something like that. You know all the sorts of things you tend to say. And, and I remember what I was, was ready to say, Poppy, when, when you get to be 76 years old, you can't expect that you're just going to have unbroken good health all the time, etc., etc. I had some real good secular arguments to bring, you know. Um, Fortunately, I think I kept my mouth shut, and I'm glad, because he was right where he needed to be. It was as if he took a quote right out of verse 13, and he didn't need my help. 
He was dealing with his God. And you don't have to worry too much about people like that. An uncompromising steadfastness, even in the midst of that kind of trouble. Now, thirdly, the Lord gives unexplainable faith. In verses 16 and 17, particularly, Ruth's Ruth's words uh, to Naomi. Uh, In verses 16 and 17, these are the very first words that Ruth speaks. She figures in the story before this, but this is the first time in the story that she talks. And, of course, um, uh, what I'm going to try to argue here is that looking at verses 16 and 17 in their context, that you have to assume that faith is a supernatural gift from God, for there is no other, other explanation for it here. You notice those words. Ruth said, don't pressure me to abandon you, to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh bring all the more disaster on me if even death separates me from you. You know, Naomi had just given her argument in verses 11 to 13. It was an argument that carried things to the point of absurdity in order to make its point. And you remember how she said, look, girls, you've got nothing. You've got no future with me. Even, even if I said I've, I, I have a husband uh, tonight, even if, even if I married, even if I conceived, even if I bore sons, are you going to wait until they're grown so they can be your Don't you see? I've got nothing that I can give you. That was her argument. And so Orpah, in verse 14, without blame, took the only rational response and returned home. But Ruth had this cling thing, and so she didn't. And so you have these words in verses 16 and 17. Now, how is this such an unexplainable faith? Well, because, because there were no advantages whatever for Ruth to come to this faith and to make this kind of commitment. There's no rational basis to it, you might say. For example, there was no economic advantage. She was going to be connecting with a widow. Now, in that situation, there were no pensions and so on. Uh, To be a widow was synonymous with destitution normally. And so when uh, Ruth commits herself to Naomi, uh, among other things, and sticking with her, uh, she's automatically giving herself up to a life of probably poverty and of dirt under the fingernails. There was no economic advantage here. You didn't go... uh, 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 to the community college outside of Bethlehem and retool yourself and go back into the workforce as a receptionist at the local dental clinic. You couldn't do that. 
Uh, that just wasn't an option. Uh, none of that. You didn't become uh, a member of the tents and so on and farm yourself out to wherever you might be needed in the community. No, widowhood often was a dead-end street, and it was synonymous with poverty. And so there was no economic advantage. Moreover, there was no social advantage. Where was Ruth's social support system? It was back in Moab with daddy and mommy back at the home. She could go back there, no doubt. But that's where the social links were. That's where the support was. Um, And sometimes that kind of connectionalism in, in the family could be quite tight in the newsy texts that reflect the time uh, several hundred years before Ruth. Uh, in the newsy text, there's an example of uh, two sons who were disinherited by their father. And why were they disinherited? Because they moved to another town. You better think twice before you leave home, bud. Uh, maybe there, there, was a, there can be a tightness about that, but she's willing to leave that. So there's, there's no, she, she forsakes her social advantage. And there is no racial advantage. You notice in verse 22, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. She's Ruth the Moabite. She's the girl from Moab. She doesn't belong in Israel. She's not one of us. Now, to say that, I'm not saying that uh, the Israelites around Bethlehem and so on radically discriminated against Moabites or something. I'm not saying that they hung Moabites in effigy or anything like that and so on. But it's just that she wasn't one of them. Some of you know what that's like. We've been in situations before, uh, even if it's within our own country, uh, in a different community perhaps, and we're just not one of them. Well, there was no racial advantage, and there was no apparent religious advantage. You might say, well, surely Ruth was attracted by, by the faith of Yahweh and about, uh, by, by what Naomi perhaps and what she had heard and learned from Naomi and Elimelech uh, on, in, in past years about Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether that would be much of an advantage. As far as what she could see, Yahweh didn't seem to treat his worshipers very well. Case in point, Naomi. She had seen more of Yahweh's scourging hand than she had of his protective wings. There's no apparent religious advantage to this. And there's no psychological advantage either. Now, I'm not denying that Naomi may have been a very attractive personality, normally perhaps warm and, and caring, etc. We don't know exactly because that's not in the text. Uh, but we do know that as of late, Naomi probably wasn't in the best form. Uh, she didn't, you know, after the third death, gather her Orpah and Ruth together and say, now girls, we've just had a third tragedy and death here, but let's just gather together and sing the 103rd Psalm together. No, she didn't do, she didn't do that. She didn't go around with that fixident smile on her face like some say that we ought to and just say she's just praising the Lord because the three people that matter most to her are buried under Moabite dirt. 
No, she didn't do that. She wasn't the most victorious, winsome sort of personality at this time. No psychological advantage, apparently, that we can see here. Now, of course, someone may say, ah, yes, but (laughs) Ruth could stick it out with Naomi for a while. But you know Naomi's going to last forever. She's not going to last forever. The day's going to come. Naomi's going to kick the bucket. And Ruth can go back to Moab and to her family, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, you didn't hear Ruth in verse 17. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh bring all the more disaster upon me if even death separates me from you. Ah. No, no, this, this was a permanent affair. She went on oath in Yahweh's name in verse 17. And this was a commitment to Yahweh above all. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. This is not a sociological statement by which Ruth changes her address. This is a confession of faith for which there seems to be no earthly reason or explanation, I should say. Uh, Sometimes things are are, are so unlikely that it's just hard to explain them. It's sort of like that situation with this uh, uh, Iranian hunter by the name of Ali, uh, in, and about 1991 in Tehran, uh, Ali was out apparently hunting, but he came upon a snake and he took his gun and he put the, the stock or the butt of it down uh, right behind the head of this snake. Apparently he was wanting to capture it and take it alive maybe, but there he had it. And the snake, um, well, um, it curled the rest of its body around the butt of the gun and then uh, with its tail pulled the trigger and shot Allie through the head. Now, that's not likely. Um, (laughs) Snake kills hunter with hunter's gun. Um, There's something wrong with that. It's, It's almost inexplicable. And there's a sense in which there's an inexplicable element about this whole matter of coming to faith. Maybe, maybe you don't see it that way, but some of you know, uh, know that that's the case. How do you explain it? Well, well Paul tells us in Philippians 1.29, uh, one way you can explain it. He says, um, to you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And you notice what Paul's saying. To, to you, it is given. That means to be graciously given, to be a gift of grace. To you, it is graciously given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. Now, he's, he's putting the stress on the suffering there, but that doesn't negate the believing. To you, it is given on behalf of Christ to believe in him. Faith is a gift. So when you see, is, is faith your act? Yes, it's your response to the word and the gospel of God, etc. But if you scratch that faith a little bit, you begin to, this is a gift. This come, came from somewhere else. That's the only explanation you can give. And isn't that, is, isn't this one of the grand mysteries 
of the kingdom of God, that you wonder how on earth you ever got into it. It's almost inexplicable. It's in hymn 469 in your Trinity hymnal. You remember how in that hymn it depicts the coming into the kingdom of God as, as coming to the gospel feast. And one of the stanzas said, while all, says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? I can't explain it. You can't believe how you came to believe. Why? It's a gift. And I think it's taught even in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now, fourthly, notice that also the Lord gives unseen support. Verses 19 to 22, unseen support. Now, these are the words of Naomi that we've uh, spoken of earlier when she comes to the city gate, uh, when she returns with Ruth. And uh, Naomi's words to the women at the city gate are both right and wrong. They're both true and false. They're both uh, sad and perceptive. It's kind of a mixed bag as you uh, look at them. Uh, On the one hand, Naomi was right. Well, just look there. The Almighty has deeply marred me. That's probably right. Or verse 21, the Almighty has brought disaster on me. I'm not going to debate her on that. What about Yahweh has testified against me? Well, I don't know. Uh, That's the way she thinks about it. I don't know if she's right or not. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But she's also wrong. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. First of verse 21. That's wrong. She got that messed up. Because if she would have just stuck out her elbow, she would have plunked Ruth in the solar plexus, who's standing right beside her. Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned with her from the country of Moab. There was someone. She didn't come back. Yahweh didn't bring her back empty. But she couldn't see that. Now, I think this leads us to a principle here. Frequently, in and with affliction, Yahweh provides the means of easing the affliction Now, that may come through another person, as it does here. It may come through change or twists of circumstances. It may come through the comfort of the Scriptures, etc., or a combination of those. Let me back up again. Frequently, in and with affliction, Yahweh provides the means of easing the affliction, and this is not seen at the time. We just don't see it. Too much seems to be on. We're blind to it. It reminds me of the story Roy Lauren tells in his expository commentary on 2 Corinthians. He said that 
I know this would have been a number of years ago. There was a fellow who was working. They had to work at night on a construction project. And he was working uh, on the top of a, a wall. I don't know, several stories up. And they were working at night and so on. And as he was working at the edge of the wall, he lost his balance and slipped and, and was ready to fall. But he was able to catch the top of the wall as he fell and hung on. Now, he, he began screaming for help. But you see, everybody was working. There were, the, there were the, the myriad of mechanical sounds, riveting machines going on and so on. Nobody could hear a cry of distress or emergency. It, there was just too much racket. And, and after a while, of course, you can only scream so long and cry so long. And you have to conserve your strength. And then your strength begins to go because your arms go numb. And, and after a while, your, your, your fingers just won't follow your will. And they begin to slip as they did for this fellow. And so after a while, he, his fingers let go. And he, with a terrifying yell, he fell about three inches <laughs> to a scaffolding that had been there all the time, but he couldn't see it in the dark. Sometimes, sometimes the Lord puts a scaffolding down there beneath you in your troubles, but in the darkness, you don't see it. But the Lord is that way. He tends to give you unseen support. Now, let's try to be clear on what our purpose is tonight. It's not to explain why bad things happen to good people. First, there are no good people. I won't oppress you, but if, for example... I received what I deserved only for the sins of this past week, I would not be here tonight. Now, there's nothing particularly visibly dicey about those, just twisted evil motives and thoughts and anger and resentment and bitterness and idolatry and selfishness, as I said, idolatry, and bad things. Well, we don't know, and we're not smart enough, and we don't have enough time, and we don't have enough context to know sometimes whether bad things are really bad things or not. We don't have everything we need there. No. All I want to say tonight is, the Lord may take away. But the Lord who takes away also gives. Let us pray. These are padded pews, our Father. But life has not been padded for many of those sitting in them. So we are here, O Lord, with our baffled minds and broken hearts and ravaged hopes. And yet, O Lord, open our eyes, we pray, to see what you have given us 
in the midst of our afflictions. In Jesus' name, amen.